Would you take your seats? I invite you to turn in God's holy and inspired word back to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, where we will read verses 27 through 32. Five whole verses. Now, we're not going to cover all of that whole five verses a day. I don't want to overwhelm you all all at once with covering such such a, a huge portion of Scripture. But within these few words, I'm, I want to read these two sections together, even though most of your Bibles separate these two sections. I want to read them together because Christ is holding them together. They work together. We're going we're gonna to deal with the first part this morning, and Lord willing, deal with all of it together uh, next Lord's Day. Matthew 5, 27 through 32, practicing, practicing Christ's fidelity in heart and conduct. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as Jesus continues to speak to us and and to impress deep within our hearts and within our souls what you have always revealed concerning yourself, what that requires of us, what we are incapable of giving, and yet what you have been pleased to give us. Lord, help us not to run from or to shirk away from the the difficulties of these penetrating words of Jesus Christ. But may we not only have a true sense of our sin, but a true apprehension of your mercy to us in Christ as we listen this morning. Help us, we pray, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip Ryken is a Reformed scholar. Some of you probably are aware of that name. He's an ordained teaching elder in the PCA who has served uh, both as a pastor but has also served Um, as the president of a seminary, and he has kind of done everything in between those two things. He's been in the academic world, he's been in the pastoral world, and he shares this story about this conversation that he had one time 
with a, a Jewish rabbi. And as they were discussing the things of their faith, uh, Dr. Riken started uh, asking the rabbi questions with regards to Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, especially these sec- this section that we've been looking at where, where Jesus is contrasting his interpretation and application of the Old Testament versus the interpretation and application of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, as I've noted to you before, um, Jesus is not escalating the teaching of the Old Testament. He is merely saying, here's what the Old Testament has always meant. From the very beginning, when God provided his law to his people, he said that they were to write the law on their hearts, that they were to circumcise their hearts, that the word of God was always to be both internal and external. So he's not He's not giving new teaching. He's not escalating the teaching of the Old Testament. He's saying, here's what my father always intended, and here is where you're getting it wrong. And so Dr. Riken tells this story about this, this exchange that he had with a Jewish rabbi as they talked about the way Jesus is interpreting and applying the Old Testament. Where Jesus says, you've heard that you shouldn't kill, I say, if you've hated, if you've insulted, you've killed. When, asked, when he asked the Jewish rabbi what, you know, what he thought about that, the rabbi said, well, if, if that's the true understanding of the Old Testament, well, then all we're doing is sinning all the time. To which Dr. Riken said, you're getting it. Now, he didn't say that, but I forget exactly what he said. He's too polished to say you're getting it. That's my southern interpretation of Dr. Riken. But that's the point. And this is what God has been trying to help us understand ever since our first parents fell into sin. That if we stayed in that situation, or if we relied on ourselves to try to get out of that predicament, then we had no hope. God's word and God's law has three main purposes for why he has provided to provided it to us and, and one purpose is, would be more of a, a sociological purpose that God's word um, can have a positive benefit in restraining evil and encouraging the good in a society. Within American society, we have, we have a system that is built upon a Judeo-Christian understanding of, of the law and of ethics. And when the country has been more consistently following that, it has looked a certain way, even though we've been really good at, at hiding our eyes to really important sections of the law. And at other times when we are less faithful you know, to what is there, then society shows that as well. 
This is not about saving grace, but that the word of God, it can have this, this external benefit to a society. But that external benefit is not the only purpose for what God has, for why God has given this law. And so God has also given this law to show us that we are incapable of keeping his law. It is to show us that we have a need for a righteousness that we can't produce on our own. Lastly, it also can help show us how to pursue a holy life. And as we have been talking about for the last few weeks, as the children's catechism states so well, what God is doing in us through his means of grace is he's making us more and more holy in our heart and conduct. That God's word, that God through his spirit is writing his word on our hearts so that we are becoming more and more like the word, Jesus Christ. One of the things that I sometimes like to do when I have a little downtime is I like to watch YouTube videos that sometimes you know, get off into some weird things. And years ago, when we were living in Charleston, we had this huge hornet's nest in the ground that I uncovered with the lawnmower. And it was very exciting. There was a lot of running and Christy trying to knock things off of me and stripping. And it was very exciting. So I started YouTubing, how do you kill a hornet's nest in the ground? And there's all kinds of ways, right? But I came across this guy that what he liked to do is he would clear, clear it away. And then he would melt aluminum and pour it into the, uh, into the nest that's underground and then what he would do is once it had uh, cooled and hardened which obviously would kill everything in it he would then dig it up and have these like pieces of aluminum art it's actually pretty it's pretty interesting and uh, just the other day while having some downtime at GA I watched one that he did on a fire ant bed and it was the biggest one he had ever done and it reminded me as he was smelting that aluminum, and he shows you, he has the whole, whatever the thing is called, there's a fancy name for it, I know Steve probably knows what the word is, but he has the thing, and he had you know the hard aluminum in there, and he's melting it down, and he showed the process of taking this, I called it a spoon, I'm sure it wasn't a spoon, uh, but this instrument where he had to dip it down into the aluminum as it was melting, and he would pull up this just gross sludge and flick it to the side. And every so often he had to do that. And he, and he talked about that if he doesn't remove the dross, that the aluminum won't have the right consistency to, to accomplish what he's trying to do. Now, we just sang that, that classic hymn, How Firm a Foundation, 
that we have in the word of God and what God is doing with his word. Where the design he has for his word working into the depths of our hearts and our souls is to remove the dross. He's purifying us. And it's a process that's going to happen under heat. It's not a pleasant process, but the result is beautiful and amazing. And what we have to do is come to that end of ourselves where we pray to the Lord, empty us of ourselves, empty us of our sin, and fill us with yourself. Fill us with your truth your goodness, and your beauty. And so Jesus has already confronted us about this sacramental obedience and devotion that we are to give back to the Lord because of the grace of Christ within us. As Christ has taken up residence within us and as Christ is forming himself within us, as, as he is shaking us up and as he is changing us, and by his grace, making us to resemble him more and more. Within this process, he, he has to confront us that it's not just about external conduct. Because when you make it about external conduct, as the Pharisees were doing, they were changing the law. They were making the law simpler. They were making the law more easy to do by focusing on the externals. I've never physically murdered anyone, so I have never broken the sixth commandment. And Jesus says, have you insulted somebody? And not just insulted them to their face. Have you ever thought in your heart, that idiot? As we said last week, have you ever felt the need to bless someone's heart. You don't have to physically kill somebody to destroy them. Words will destroy a person. Words that are spoken to someone at an early age can forever set their lives on a trajectory that leads them into self-harm their entire lives. You don't have to kill someone to murder them. Now Jesus goes from preaching to meddling. You don't have to physically engage in adultery to be unfaithful. The principle is still the same. The principle is still what is going on in your heart and how is that reflecting itself in your words and in your actions? How are your words and actions revealing what is in your heart? 
The two must be held together. And yes, once again, just in case someone thought that they, they had kept the sixth commandment perfectly, if they were willing to say, oh, I've, I've never insulted someone. I've never thought someone was an idiot. I've, I've not broken that. Okay, well, let's get to desire. Have you ever set your desire on an object in a way that was contrary to God's design? Jesus is not interested in mere external conformity to the rule, but our heart's conformity to God's purpose in the rule. And his purpose is, is that he is revealing himself. Adultery is unfaithfulness. And God, by his very nature, cannot be unfaithful. Thou changest not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. We just sang those words. God is always true to himself. God is always faithful to who he is, the purposes that he has, the actions that he engages in, the reasons for those actions. There's not one aspect of God's existence where someone can say that he is unfaithful. And as Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God, as he is the second person of the Trinity who has taken to himself flesh, he has come as the embodiment of God's faithful, steadfast love. Throughout the Old Testament, the way God reveals himself over and over is in this twofold description of his chesed wa'imeth. His faithful covenant love and his mercy. God is chesed and Jesus Christ is chesed embodied. Jesus Christ is God's covenant love in flesh. And when Christ sets his love upon his church in which he set that love on you before the foundations of the world. Before God made the world that you would one day come into existence in, God had already set his heart on you. And there was going to be nothing, including original sin, that would keep God from getting what he wanted. And for some reason, what he wants is us. And so God has been faithful to achieve what he wants, even to the point of embodying his faithfulness in his son, Jesus Christ. That even when Jesus at times in dealing with the lack of faith in his own disciples, would say, Oy vey, how, how much longer do I have to live? 
with this faithless generation. It wasn't an expression of, well, I'm, I'm tired of you and I'm done with you. It was an expression of anticipation of I cannot wait until we get to be together what we will be. And until that time comes, there is dross within you that must be sanctified. And that dross goes all the way to the depths of your heart's desire. And the reality is, beloved, as God has made us in his image, he has made us desirers. And he has provided us the proper objects of those desires. But what sin does is corrupt and twist and corrode the desiring element itself. Jesus wants us to be honest about within ourselves. Is where have your desires taken you is it wrong for a man to desire a woman in marriage those of you who came to the to the song of solomon class we talked about that a lot no it's a blessing from god that god has gifted humanity with But what sin does is it twists and it corrupts. And by the way, the perspective of the Song of Solomon is from the woman's perspective. Is it wrong for a woman to desire a man in marriage? No, it is not. It is a beautiful, powerful gift that God has given us that sin likes to twist and corrode and to corrupt. And what Jesus is not telling us here is that the act of desiring is wrong. It's setting that desire on the wrong thing for the wrong purposes. If you are married and there is not a desire between partners, between husband and wife in the marriage, there's a problem. There are things that need to be worked on. The issue is not the desire. It's the way the desire is being mismanaged here. And when a man or a woman sets their desire on another person that is outside of the design that God has for that relationship, what Jesus tells us is that we are contradicting his faithful love. The entirety of the Old Testament story of God's people is a story about how they were an adulterating people who constantly chased after false gods. And God in his faithfulness did not give up on them. That passage that we read from Joel 2 in the call to confession is God having told his people that he is going to come and he's going to judge them because of their spiritual adultery, even within the announcement of the coming judgment, still says to them, yet even 
now. Return to me. Come back. Come back with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts, not your garments. In the Middle East, even to this day, when people are experiencing grief and when they are revealing that grief as it is described in the New Testament, as you can see it today, people would literally tear their clothes and they would throw ashes up into the air and cover themselves with ash and they would tear their clothes. And what God is saying is, I don't want that. I don't want that mere outward show of something. I want you to rend your hearts because your adultery is coming from your heart. And he says, repent to me for I am gracious and merciful. And I relent over disaster. The repentance to which God calls us as his people is not a repentance to try to get something from God, but it is to embrace what God gives. And so notice, how seriously should we take the desires of our heart? How seriously should we take the calling that we have as God's people to reflect His faithful love? Well, Jesus says that this issue is so serious that one, if we don't take a serious note of this, not only will it wreck ourselves, it will wreck our marriage, which is why in in 31 and 32, Jesus goes from talking about adultery in the heart to talking about divorce. And we'll get to that, Lord willing, next Sunday. But if you don't take this stuff seriously in the way in which you are learning to shepherd your heart or to guard your heart, as we read Three weeks ago from Proverbs 4, that we guard the heart for from it flow everything in life. If we are not guarding our heart and the desires of our heart, if we let them run about and go after the wrong things or to go after the right things but the wrong way, what happens is we set ourselves on a trajectory in which we are cultivating within ourselves the very dissatisfaction that is leading us to desire and crave to begin with. You crave because you were meant to crave, and sin has corrupted the craving process. In redemption, God is helping us to learn how to develop contentment. He's trying to help us learn how to develop and to appreciate satisfaction. He wants us to cultivate the things that lead to joy and happiness. What he doesn't want us to do is cultivate habits and practices that lead us to enslave ourselves from the very thing he has freed us from. 
He has not redeemed us in order for us to run back into Egypt. He has redeemed us in order that we would walk with him as we move from Egypt to the promised land. And you and I, as we are on that pilgrimage with Christ, going from this world to the world to come, going from this world in which our existence is one of forgiveness, yet still sinning, to that existence that we will have where we will never sin again, but we will live in the full appreciation of who God is and and what he has done for us. In between those two points, beloved, you and I have to go through this process where he empties us of ourselves to fill us with that which is eternal and superior to the the things that are created and that are rusting and decaying and going away because of sin. And so Jesus tells us, if we don't take this seriously, it will keep us from being who we are. How serious? Well, if your right eye causes you to sin, get rid of it. If your right hand causes you to sin, get rid of it. It's better to limp into the eternal kingdom where you will receive your new body than to cling to the lusts of the flesh which will lead you to hell. John Owen, in his famous work, The Mortification of Sin, states it very simply for us. You better be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And the mortification to which Christ calls us as his people is a mortification in which we strive in the power of grace as those who have Christ residing within us through the Spirit to live out the new nature we have in Christ by putting to death the old man that is still there and by cultivating the habits and practices that deepen our appreciation of who God is and who we are in Christ. What are you willing to give up in order that more of your heart is enlivened to the Christ who resides there? God tells us that there is a place for fasting as a means of practicing a denial of self in order to help us enlarge our hearts towards him. When was the last time that when you became aware of sin within your life that you were like, I need to spend time fasting over this issue in my life? When was the last time that your sin, as it became made aware to you, it resulted in a weeping and a mourning over the sin itself? As we talked about in Sunday school this morning, repentance, as it does lead a sinner to have a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, it leads the sinner 
the sinner to respond to that sin with grief and hatred of the sin. So often, what I have experienced in the church is that the majority of people tend to be tempted to respond to themselves with grief and hatred. Oh, I'm just the worst person in the world. Oh, there's no good in me. Oh, I'm just a worm. Oh, God shouldn't love me. And we go into these, these periods of self-loathing, and that's not repentance. Why would you call yourself something different than what God calls you? God says, in Christ, you are my righteous son. You are my righteous daughter. And I call you as my righteous son and daughter to celebrate that. Repentance is not about making a whole big deal about how awful you are, but it is about rightly recognizing how awful and how dangerous sin is. But also to recognize how glorious God's mercy in Christ is. Just how comprehensive it is and just how deep it goes into your heart and soul that there is not one place within your life where there is hidden sin that Jesus missed when he hung on the cross for you. Think about that. Not one jot, not one tittle, as Jesus said just a few verses before. All your sin was covered by Christ. All your sin was paid for in Christ. The penalty for it is paid, and the power of it is broken. And one day, the presence will also be removed forevermore. But until that day comes, beloved, we will wrestle with the tension within the sin that is still in our hearts that will attempt to, to place itself on the wrong things or to place itself on the, wrong, the right things but in the wrong ways and for the wrong reasons. And what Jesus does is he tells us that when we become aware that this is happening within our hearts, that we in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to him. As we go forth as the people of God, as we desire not only to be the recipients of God's faithful love, but as we have the privilege of bearing witness to that faithful love and being conduits of that faithful love to this world that is in desperate need of it, to this world that is living in the desperate uh, enslavement, to the flesh, which even right now, as we are celebrating Pride Month, what we are celebrating, we're not, but what the culture is celebrating is nothing less than the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. 
It is celebrating unrestrained lust. But beloved, the point of the text here isn't for us to put the spotlight on them. It's to put the spotlight on our own hearts. Where is lust unrestrained within me? Where do I need to be broken over unrestrained lust in me? Where do I need to cultivate practices that lead me into a deeper appreciation of who I am in Jesus Christ so that I might embody God's faithful love and not just use it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your grace goes so much further and deeper beyond what we know we need. And even when we become aware of what we need, it still surpasses, it still superabounds, that there is nothing within us where, where the work of Christ has not taken care of everything that is needed, and that there is not one aspect of the, the craving of our heart and the desires that we have as those made in your image, that there is nothing there that is remaining enslaved to sin. And so convince us, Lord, of the freedom that we have in Christ to work on cultivating the desires of our hearts onto the right things in the right ways for the right reasons. And help us, Lord, as we do this, to more fully embrace the need that we have in Christ and the provision that you have given us in him. Lord, impress upon us the seriousness to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. And bless us, Lord, as we go through looking into our lives, looking for places where, where we are not attempting to restrain our desires. And Father, if there is anyone here within this room that finds himself or herself wrestling with an enslavement to lust, Father, may they have the courage to know that your love for them has not changed and has not failed and that there are elders here who are ready to help them, to love on them and to, to point them and walk with them through, the, through what feels like the valley of the shadow of death that they may indeed receive the the still waters and the green pastures that they may eat in the presence of their enemies and rest knowing that they will reside in your house forevermore. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.